You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You were supposed to be in Istanbul last night. I'm afraid this unfortunate lighter business has uh, clouded your judgment. You have a job to do. I expect you on a plane this afternoon. I haven't finished here, sir. Leave it to the Americans. It's their mess. Let them clear it up. Sir, they're not going to do anything. I owe it to Lighter. He's put his life on the line for me many times. Oh, spare me this sentimental rubbish. He knew the risks. And his wife? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment. And I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. And I require you to hand over your weapon. Now. I need hardly remind you that you're still bound by the Official Secrets Act. Farewell to arms. Welcome back to the 602 Club. Coming at you live from a small little country south of the border, Isthmus. I'm so excited to be here as we'll be talking about some James Bond. That's right. We are back with 007 and sadly also the end of the Timothy Dalton era. Um, it's It's like we barely began, guys. Right. I mean, it's so minimal for such a wonderful person coming into this role. I mean, so different than Roger Moore and so serious, but so cool. Look, I, I'm just going to suggest uh, uh, just go back and watch uh, Lion in Winter and uh, The Rocketeer and Flash Gordon to get your Timothy Dalton fix. <laughs> and then in the future, yeah. oh Petition my gosh. and the Beast, yes. which is yes. my recommendation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and he's on the show Chuck. Oh, he's great I've never in seen Chuck, Chuck as well. And he's on there for like a whole season, so you can get a lot of Timothy Dalton. Uh, but no, I yeah, the Rocketeer, man. Um, that's I think maybe one of the first places I saw him mm. is in the Rocketeer. So um yeah, super excited to to dive into license to kill tonight. Um before we do that, just remember you can find all the shows that we're doing here on the network all over the place. But the best place to go is Apple Podcasts. Uh and you can find us at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. All of our shows are there. And, of course, while you're there, hit the 602 Club up with the star rating review. It's been a while since we've had one. and definitely helps people find the show. So uh, help us out that way. And if you do, we'll call you out in the show. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We're all, the hosts here, we're all on our listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference, where you can have a discussion with every fan that's joined. Um, now, if you're on Facebook, type in Babel, 
and you'll find the group. Uh, and if you're on the website at trek.fm, click discussion on any of the menu bars and that would bring you over to that group and we can let you in. And then last but not least, a great way to contact us is to go over to trek.fm slash contact. If you choose a show, you choose the 602 Club, that sends an email to me and then any of the hosts that were on that week, and we can converse with you that way. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun to get the emails from people, um, their thoughts, what you're thinking, you know, maybe you have ideas of what we should do. So check us out all over the place and, uh, you know, make sure you're liking us and following us and all those social medias and, and helping tell your friends about Trek FM. But guys, we're continuing Bond and as we said, this is Dalton's second film. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting um is that they realize and, and Timothy Dalton seems to have a real impact on the um the the creative team. They realize this bond is different. They realize Timothy is different. So they need to write for him. Um, And they really are striving here to go back to Fleming and to create what many have called maybe one of the closest to uh, the the Fleming character uh, and kind of what we get with Timothy Dalton. And so um, that was one of the things I I thought was really interesting. And specifically, you know, uh, John Glenn, he's really directing the writers to, to match this, you know, hard edge down to earth bond and i thought that was kind of fascinating yeah i love the more hard edge bond honestly not that i didn't love roger Moore, but this feeling that you know he's been through some things and you know even though it's not behooving in his business to have connections and friends because you could lose them he does still you know as i think that anyone would have people that he cares about and that he doesn't want to lose and i think that you see that over and over again um in the last film but especially in this one um i like that they had felix mention yeah bond was married one time before and um even though it's terrifying seeing, you know, Felix possibly dying and that his wife does. Um, you're seeing this side of Bond again where he's been through some things and, you know, he's got a, so- a score to settle. Yeah, same. Um, uh, Timothy Dalton grounds Bond in a way that we've not seen up until now. And even though Connery played a more serious Bond that got more fantastical as those movies went on. He he was still a guy in this sort of slick comic book world of James Bond. And then Roger Moore, they lightened the mood a bit. Um, Even with George Lazenby, he, he was still having fun when they let the character have fun. This Bond feels so a part of the real world. And, and even just simple things like the wardrobe, that Timothy Dalton has. You get him in the nice tuxedo once, but you also get this bond in, you know, a t-shirt and khakis and and you get him just sort of being very much a part of the environment that he's in instead of being the, the standout, you know, best looking, best dressed guy in the room at all times. That sticks out like a sword. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like that one time in Harlem. Yeah, no, but you, you just you, you really feel like he like he lives there and like his motivations are are true to the character, true to what he's been through. 
Um, so I, I, I appreciate that throughout this movie uh, and throughout Dalton's tenure as Bond, but, but particularly in this movie. Yeah, I think there's a. I, I like what you said, John. There's a sense of of reality, you know. I mean, even when the movie brings in Q, um, there there's a there's a sense of that like the technology that Q's using it doesn't seem outlandish. It seems like something that you could actually build and create and make work um, with the technology. Uh, you although had I'll take in exception to one piece of technology, which is he he shows off that camera that transforms into a gun and it's really cool that they have the fingerprint technology built into the hand that makes a lot of sense it's very smart um but it was funny to me that q goes to the great lengths to show that this is it just looks like an ordinary camera yet it's a gun all the other pieces look exactly like a gun <laughs> they, right they like the scope yes, they yes. look precisely <laughs> yes. like a gun yeah. <laughs> oh yes absolutely 100 <laughs> percent look like a gun um no like um rogue nation flute gun here that not not even like a flute. man with a golden uh, no, gun this, gun where you have a pen no. and a lighter and a cigarette case no no, no. <laughs> this is this is something that was interesting too um because they also, as they're writing the movie, they're also thinking about locations, and they wanted to film the movie in China. And so I wanted to ask you uh, how you felt about that idea. Do you feel that maybe that would have added um, a bit of pizzazz to the movie? Because, you know, I, I feel like going kind of south of the border in Mexico doesn't seem as exotic as being, you know, hoping to have a chase on the Great Wall, you know, uh, or the Terracotta Army, you know, have a showdown there. Um, so do you feel like that would have um, benefited the movie if they had been able to find a way to, to, to bring this drug trade thing into China? I think it just doesn't make as much sense if you have it filmed in China. Although, you know, of course, the Great Wall, the Terracotta Soldiers and all that would be cool. And the scenery, I mean, man, you have a lot to work with in China. Um, but I think that because they've chosen this villain that's in the drug trade um, and that they've gone with names like Sanchez and Lupe and stuff, it just makes more sense for the story to have a setting that's a, a Latin country than it would to be having a, a drug trade thing going on in China to me. I, I think it hurts a little bit that you start the movie in Key West. So you go from tropical location to tropical location. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a little bit too much of the same. So I would have liked to have seen part of the movie elsewhere. Or if you're going to do a South American thing, keep keep going. Go to El Salvador, go to Ecuador, go, go to some place where you have even more lush, beautiful, exotic locations. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a little... I'm a little lukewarm on it. it. It makes sense to the character and it makes sense to the contemporary feel of the movie. Um, but I think they're hurt by their location the more they stay in that location. Um, and particularly when you get to the end and you have the, uh, uh, the, the Wayne Newton religious temple and, and all of this <laughs> stuff, it, it just, it, it feels like they're, they're sort of stretching the budget. Um, and I felt like that actually early on in the movie, too, where a lot of the scenes in Key West, particularly around Felix Leiter's house, um, where it felt very much like a set, 
and the lighting was very flat and it just felt a little too made for TV. So if they had jazzed it up a little bit, maybe a change of location would have worked or, or maybe just a little more careful attention to those settings. Um, it, thematically, it works, but it felt like a little too much of the same. Yeah, maybe a place like Brazil would have been better. See, there you got me. Look how beautiful that was in Moonraker, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do agree, like, um, it, it just, in the scenes especially, like you said, at, at Felix's house, I think at one point when they're showing Bond going into Felix's office again, it looks like he's going into a building on a set with a backdrop of a sunset. Right, right, right. Yeah. It doesn't even look like it's real. And and here's the thing. I I know that not everybody in the James Bond audience lives in the U.S. Clearly is the biggest film franchise around the world for a reason. But I I don't want my James Bond in Florida. I I want Mm -hmm. my James Bond in Macau or in Berlin or in anywhere else. (laughs) You know, I don't want him in Florida. I really don't. That that was the part that um, so I brought the question because uh, when I was thinking, oh wow, you know, if we had gone from Felix's wedding in Florida in the Key in Key mm-hmm. West, which is a gorgeous place, I mean, the, the scenery yeah. when they and are I love outside, they use the Hemingway you know, House, that's the, super the, cool. The, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that is great. Um, but then if you had then made the transition to uh, the mm-hmm. east in China, you know, the Far East. I think it would have created um, a nice juxtaposition. But but I will say this, you know, they, they could have made the character of Sanchez somebody else and set that character in the East. Right. Absolutely. But it's really yep. nice for the time that we are in South yes. America that we're on Sanchez's turf. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what's really cool. Those scenes of Bond waking up in his uh, at once uh, uh, beautiful and horrendously bizarre home, you know, <laughs> um, all of that stuff is pretty effective. Um, so had that been a different character of a different nationality and they, they just move him elsewhere, yes, you can have a drug trade coming out of China or coming out of Hong Kong or coming out of Thailand or, or whatever. Um, but I, I just I like the dynamic they got out of the relationship between Bond and Sanchez. Yeah, I, I was going to say one of the things that really struck me is that, you know, the movie has a smaller scope to it, but it, I, what I felt like that it's not a detriment to the film because the movie is kind of a, a smaller scope in the sense that this is kind of more personal for Bond, right. too. So it's not about the locations and everything. This is really a movie about a man coming to grips with trying to avenge his best friend's wife's death and the almost, you know, the end of his best friend. And so, you know, actually going to Mexico and, and they actually shoot and film on location in Mexico. Uh, and this is the only movie that they don't in the first movie, they don't film at Pinewood. Um, so, you know, um, there are some places where I think you can tell that with the set work, it's, it's mm-hmm. not quite the same. Um, but I also, you know, you, John, you were mentioning the flatness of some of this stuff. I feel like that's just uh it, it kind of fit the very late 80s too. So it, it it feels right for the I feel like that time period. Um 
you know, for things to not be flashy because the late, very late 80s and very early 90s, there's absolutely nothing flashy going on in the world. <laughs> well, that's right true. Now. Like, it's just, it's it's not a pretty world when it comes to like the fashion. Well, that was definitely an 80s or, wedding. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the, a lot of that stuff, it, it's, it's, um, it, I don't know, the late 80s and early 90s, some of it just feels tacky anyway. And so it, it it kind of worked for me in that sense that that we were in this kind of milieu that's not quite the fashionable bond. But then again, when you're writing for Dalton, Dalton's not a flashy mm-hmm. bond. He's more like the character in the novel, which is this hard-nosed, stone-cold killer who... Is there anything alive inside? And that's what we're trying to get to. I, f- I feel like this movie, at least with what they end up trying to do here, that's what they're going for, at least. So, and I guess we'll talk mm-hmm. about, obviously, <laughs> if they if they get there, you know? Yeah, I love that this is Bond going rogue and not on assignment. And, you know, his license to kill has been revoked, which, you know, I mean, who doesn't love that phrase anyway? Um, perfect name for this movie. Um <laughs> But, you know, it it is so personal for him and he's got something to lose and has lost something. And it just really gives some a whole nother dynamic to this movie and to Bond, I think. One of the things, um, you know, obviously this is the point where we're not really we're not pulling direct stories uh, from Fleming. But because Glenn uh, and uh, the writers were very kind of keen to go back to that feel because of Timothy Dalton, they actually pulled a scene from Fleming's Live and Let Die where Felix is mauled by a shark. And they kind of use that as the impetus for the movie for Bond going rogue. And then, of course, they add, you know, his wife being killed um, by this drug lord and and wrapping that in. And what I kind of liked about the movie is is how the story wraps in the idea that Bond gets wrapped into Felix's work, not the other way around. So Bond is actually continuing the work that Felix has been doing for the CIA uh, instead of it being actually a mission that he had been sent on. This is something that Felix has been putting all together, and he's just following all those clues and of course, like you said, he goes rogue. So first, just want to get it. How do you feel about the the feel of this movie? Because I, for the most part, there are a couple places where it's not. But this is a very gritty, very dark, much more violent movie than I think we've ever gotten before in Bond. Do, and do you feel like that that works for the movie? Or do you, did they take it too far? What do you guys think? I, I mean... I think it comes down to what is motivating Bond this time around. So regardless of the trappings, regardless of the um, the the plot that we've set up, really for the first time, we've got Bond acting purely on his gut and purely uh, on, on a mission that drives him. The other missions, and particularly when you look back at the Roger Moore period, Bond can essentially wash his hands of everything that's going on. He He's a step removed from everything that's happening. Yes, it's a bad guy threatening the world, but it's not about him. It's not about what drives him. Here we get a guy whose whole world is turned upside down. 
And we, we question all along whether or not Bond does have real relationships. Does he have real friendships? And the only one that we've had established throughout the entire series is Felix. Yes, played by different actors all the time, but I'm glad they brought back David Hedison uh, from mm -hmm. Live and Let Die. Um, to give us some sort of anchor, some sort of grounding to to that, some consistency with Bond and the past. Um, but but I think that's what changes everything here. It, it's just really about getting inside Bond's head. And at, at every turn, you know, there, there's a great scene where um, Bond has convinced Sanchez that Crest is the guy who stole the money from him. And now he can step back and Sanchez is going to kill Crest. That's one more thing off of his list. That's one more way to get to Sanchez. That's one, way, one more way to destabilize what Sanchez's operation is, right? And the next morning, Sanchez comes in and Bond, Bond has snuck back into bed in Sanchez's place. And he says to Sanchez, you know, I just thought that nobody would be crazy enough to go up against you on your own or on their own. And it's such a good moment because, of course, Bond is playing it straight. Well, Timothy Dalton is playing it as Bond playing it straight. But we know what's in Bond's head. That in Bond's head, he would, he would strangle this guy with his own hands, given the right opportunity to do it. But he's playing this out, and he's waiting for exactly the right opportunity. And he wants to see this guy crumble apart in front of him. Um, so I, I love the idea that instead of just Bond goes on a mission to kill the bad guy, this is us inside the psychology of Bond when he has been driven by something he has not been driven by before. And, and I would even include to an extent, you know, we saw Tracy get killed at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But we really don't see what happens to Bond after that. We, we recognize that this thing happened to Bond. We recognize down the road, we reference, and, and like you just said, Christy, even in this movie, we reference that he was married before. But we really don't see the repercussions of that. So th this is a rarity where um, everything in the past, everything else that made up this character is now off the table. I think that that was a, a really good point. And um, to piggyback off of that too, I, I will say I think that it in a lot of ways does really make sense that they go as far as they did with um, how the deaths happen to each of the different characters um, and how Felix gets injured um, and almost killed himself. Um, but it, it did feel like they still were a little bit too far for my taste, um, you know, with Crest being blown apart by the pressure and it, it just felt like the deaths were a lot more bloody in this yeah. movie yeah. than really needed to be shown. It could be implied. Um, a lot of blood, a lot of blood. Yeah. Crest. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but I do, I do think that it fits that tone that he's really um, upset and has, you know, a legitimate reason to be seeking revenge. But I think that something that um, we haven't pointed out yet that is really great about Dalton in this role is that he is exhibiting, playing out such control at all these times when he could have and wanted to wring all these people by the neck that he's saying, no, I'm going to wait until the time is right. 
I think it's, uh, you know, interesting that, uh, well, one, John, you know, you've talked about Anthony Zerby getting his face stretched <laughs> off twice yeah, in twice very in few weeks, weeks yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. with insurrection and, and this. Um, so uh, one of the things I, I, I really actually enjoy about this movie is the gritty, dark nature, the more violent feel, because... When we're we're talking about the people that Bond is up against here, these are the ruthless people, you know. These are, um, the the it, they're just kind of the worst, right? In the sense of they are willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that their business goes through. Um, one, the trade that they're in is one to get people willingly addicted to their substance knowing that it will destroy their lives, but as long as they're making millions of dollars, they don't care. So they're already kind of the worst in that way. Um, but then, of course, the way that they treat people, too, uh, is not great because everything to them is about power and possession, and we clearly see that with Sanchez. And, uh, you know, the moment you think anybody's crossed you, it becomes that macho, you know, I have to take them out kind of thing. And so... it. it I really like that they don't hold back from showing just how bad these people are, what they're willing to do. Um, and they put on a facade of grandeur, right? I mean, on the outside, Sanchez, if you just saw him walking on the street or whatever, you know, he just seemed like, you know, a nice rich dude, you know? He's got a nice watch, you know, he's got a pretty lady on his arm, right? Um yeah, but that pretty lady can't wear a dress too low in her on her back because then you'd see where he mm-hmm. beat her. You know, like so that that's just where we get to, and I think that that's really um, and I'm having just watched uh, American Made with Tom Cruise where he's drug running uh, with the CIA during this time period, and you see how bad these guys are and that, and what they're willing to do to people. Um, this this felt like that and i just i felt like that adding that part to the story and and really putting bond i would say this may be the first time that bond feels real because there's not anything in this movie that isn't Mm -hmm. real that brings you out and you're like oh well that's just the bond thing right you know because there there really isn't there i i don't i didn't feel that in this one so it really does feel like this is the first time that bond could legitimately be any agent from around the world and any super spy and this is what they do you know because he's not all that glamorous um he's never really he wears a tuxedo once like you said john but the story is based around these things of of like you said kind of digging into who bond is and his psyche and i kind of like too that we see bond's adaptability because as okay shooting sanchez doesn't work and he just keeps rolling with the punches. I mean, you know, <laughs> rolling in with the satin <laughs> sheets that he gets thrown in. Um, and he, like you said, he finds this way in to start dismantling this organization from within without really having to do anything, just kind of feeding misinformation. Um, and so I, I just, the whole thing, I, to me, it's one of the better Bond stories. Like when you think about the plot lines and how all the mm-hmm. characters fit in, you know, like 
with starting with Felix and he's the one who's been after Sanchez and you, you moved um, that he's been working with this informant Pam, you know, and how she fits into the story. And like when you start thinking through all the story elements, they all fit together really nicely. And this is maybe one of the best Bond stories, I think, that we've gotten in quite a long time, especially since we shrugged through, you know, the end of the Moore era where the stories were definitely the parts for the most part that were kind of really lacking so i just yeah there's a lot that i love in this movie and then of course we're ripping things from the headlines drug barons uh you know we've got sanchez who looks like noriega you know i mean all of that stuff to me is working on all cylinders yeah, I agree with you completely as far as that goes. I, I like I said, my only thing against it was feeling like the the deaths were a little bloody. But um, I think that you're right that it's believable for the kind of villain you have that they, he just has no regard for anyone's life, not even his girlfriend. So why would any of that matter to him? It's like when 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 the guy says, "But boss, what about the money?" and he says, "Launder it, launder it." Uh, that's so good, <laughs> so good. Yep. What did you guys think um, about, I mean, because we talked about the story, um, what did you guys specifically think about some of these villains? Um, and I thought we'd start with um, some of the lower-rung villains, and then we'll move our way up. Um, so I love that Benicio Del Toro is in this movie, and he is so good at being scary creepy in this film. It's just, it's awesome. It's really It's weird, awesome. first of all, seeing him so young, because I've never seen anything with him at this age. Um, and then after just seeing him recently in The Last Jedi, it was kind of funny to be seeing another movie with Benicio in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, he really, I feel like, kind of stole the show from the other lesser villains than Sanchez um, because he's got that creepy grin down to a T. And with his accent and everything, the way that he says, you know, his line delivery is extra creepy. So I think that um, his character, Dario, was my favorite and that I I didn't care for Sanchez as much as I liked him. Yeah, not much more to add there, except that this was really early in his career and he's very young looking. He kind of looks like he stepped out of a catalog. You know, he's this nice looking mm-hmm. guy, but but something's a little off about him. And you can tell that out of all the henchmen, he's the psychopath. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, he's he's kind of wonderful in this. When he says, we gave her a nice... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so cute. Right. I mean, it's like the creepiest thing because you are imagining the worst possible yeah. things at that moment that they've yeah. done to his wife before yep. they killed her. It's yeah. it's not good. And I think, like you said, John, clear psychopath. And that's the thing I think that fits so well with the story. Like he is perfectly cast to, to give you that, you know... Um, henchmen i don't care i will do whatever it takes and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. enjoy it too like i'm not gonna just do it i'm gonna enjoy Mm -hmm. what i do um and and i think that was one of the scariest parts to it so yeah he's fantastic um i liked uh i think anthony zerby is really well cast here as milton crest because he's just kind of (laughs) swarmy and slimy and like the guy who doesn't really want to be doing this job, but it pays, you know, and like he doesn't want to get his hands too dirty. He just wants to get paid. Um, 
I just I thought he he really acts. I I forgot how I, I felt like good he is in this role. And and don't forget that um, you know you, you mentioned uh, uh, insurrection. Let let's not overlook the great Anthony Zerb performance from Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, uh, ABC Television, nineteen seventy eight, in which he was the uh, the mastermind behind the evil animatronic Kiss robots. They were going to take over the theme park. I think we're we're remiss. In fact, I'm just going to suggest that on 602 Club, just go ahead and dedicate about a month of coverage to Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, um, starring not only the rock band Kiss, but Anthony Zerb as the uh, the terrifying uh, uh, creator, the mad, mad mastermind. Uh, behind the plot to take over the theme park. No, he's great. I, I, I love that in this movie, he seems, I mean, well, she says uh, at one point, uh, Lupe says, uh, you're drunk. Really through about half of his performance, he seems like he's off. Like he's a little bit mm-hmm. drunk. And like, Oh, yeah. He seems like he might be right, using some of the right. product. Yeah. You know it's what like, I'm saying? Like one eye is a little off, you know, and he, he just seems a little sloppy. But it's perfect. It's perfect that he's just, he's clearly yep. not the guy in charge. Um, he, he's got some level of power, but he's just kind of a mess. Uh, he's sort of lucky to be in the position that he's in even. Um yeah, he's oh, he's good. He's so good. And especially the scene I think that really you feel that is when he is talking with Lupe on the boat. It really just grosses you out, makes your skin crawl that he's touching her. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I I love I love that idea too, John, that he's he's yeah, he um he's been doing a uh-huh. little sniffing in oh, yeah. the, the cabin. Oh, yeah. That's and believable. Then he's just kind of yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um he he looks like uh he's he's like the Jack Sparrow, you know. <laughs> uh, right. you know, um but with less less jokes. Um no, he is great. Um okay. So, guys, we got to get to him. I mean, he's kind of a villain, right? He's part of the plan. We yeah. Knew. Don't you want to give to the I meditation mean, center? <laughs> I I uh I I just I want to go meet him as well. Maybe get you know led into the private meditation room. I mean yeah, I don't know about uh, you, he's but he's gonna try to seduce you. Okay, I, I clearly clearly he already has. Probably he is. He already has. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I think that he fits so well in that particular character because of you know I guess knowing from my visit to Las Vegas that he I think still has his show running there if he hasn't retired yet. It seemed like a Las Vegas show set when he's doing that whole TV bit, pull out your phones. Um, so it felt very natural for a, a person like Wayne Newton to play that role. Um, and having the creepy pencil mustache and the white suit and, you know, I mean, he really does make it feel like you're giving to this charity and we're so much in need. And if you would just pull out your phones, it, it was perfect. I, I'm a little bit torn about this. I mean, I, I love Wayne Newton. I, I love anything that's cheesy Vegas Americana. I really do. And, and of course I love my James Bond movies. Um, there's something about this that is simultaneously awful and perfect in, in him mm-hmm. being this character. Um, he's he's really good. It's just the funniest thing in the world and the best thing in the world when 
he's getting one over on him all the time and bless your heart he's just he's still <laughs> staying in that yeah. <laughs> weird skeevy televangelist character no matter what he's so he sincere is, about it is. right like he just like bless yeah, your yeah. heart he's pretty great <laughs> but at the same time, there's something I feel like this movie is, and we'll we'll wrap all of this up when we get to that point in the show. Um, but I might be jumping ahead a bit here to say that Matt, I agree with you 100 percent that this story is spot on for a Bond film. I think as a movie, as a production, it's not the best Bond film, and and part of it is this weird sort of back and forth where. They don't really know where to spend their budget. They don't really have a grasp on what they want their locations and set pieces to look like and feel like. It's very inconsistent in that way. And I'm jumping ahead of our own timeline here to say, okay, th there's a character in later Bond that I think about, and that's um, Jonathan Price in Tomorrow Never Dies. For yeah, yes, for yeah, for better or for that. worse, yeah. with that movie, and, and I happen to really like that movie, so there's mm -hmm. a spoiler for a few months from now. But uh, there's something about the presence that he has in that role as this media magnate, this guy who's very comfortable on TV and comfortable calling the shots. And yeah, uh, Wayne Newton here, he's not the guy calling the shots, but he is the figurehead at least for for this part of the organization that doesn't really ring true. And it feels a little bit like the writers here have a foot in that more era comedy relief and a foot in this gritty 90 or late 80s seriousness that they're trying to express. So it doesn't quite ring true to me. So as I was watching this, I kept going back and forth like, okay, do I love Wayne Newton's performance here or do I hate Wayne Newton's performance here? <laughs> and if I hate it, is it his fault? I don't think it's necessarily his fault. I just think it's the tone of the movie doesn't always find its footing. It doesn't quite know where to land, particularly when you get to him. Yeah, I, I think you're right in that sense because I think that what they're doing with the part and how it fits, you know, I grew up in Dallas, right? Which is home mm -hmm, of Robert mm -hmm. Tilton, which is one of the biggest ripoff televangelists oh, yeah, of all yeah. time <laughs> so i'm very well aware of this being a total reality and so i really like that they're actually using that in this and, and they're using it as a way as uh to run drugs you know i just it, it's a genius plan um because nobody would suspect uh it's a, i i do think that if you had cast somebody else other than Wayne Newton, who I feel like in the role kind of takes over as just the, he's Wayne Newton being kind of a Wayne Newtonish type of character. If you had actually cast somebody in there to play the role and play this part and give it something that's not Wayne Newton, it's actually somebody giving this right, character right. life. Um, I think that it would have come off better. But again, like, I think that I don't want to take too much away because I really think that the, the actual part of the story that's happening here all flows pretty well in the sense of like this part makes sense, this role makes sense. It might just be that we needed somebody um, to come in like Anthony Zerby does with Crest or 
uh, you know, Benicio del Toro does with Dario, or we haven't talked about it, but, you know, Robert Davi comes in with uh, Sanchez to give this role a life of its own beyond the, the face, the, yeah. the yeah. person that we've yeah. gotten played. Yeah. So if that had happened, I think we would have been like, oh, man, that was great. And I think it would have sold it much better. Um, I do think he brings a a cheesiness that doesn't f- totally fit with the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. I guess I want to give him a little bit more of the benefit and the doubt and say, but that's also kind of, there's a part of me that's like, I'm like you with you, John. Is he playing it amazing or is it just <laughs> awful? Mm-hmm. And and part of that is because like, if you watch those like really like just um, ugh, pastors, mm-hmm. you know, this is kind of yeah. how they come off. So I almost feel like I I want to say Wayne Newton's actually doing a genius yeah, job. Yeah, I, I don't think instead yeah, of I, he's I don't not. Think, you know what I'm saying? Like it's hard. Right, it's right. Really it's tough. A, I don't think he's doing a bad job. I think he's doing exactly what he was asked to do. I just think tonally the movie isn't quite finding what it's supposed to be there. You know? Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I I agree with you. So so that just leaves us with Robert Davi. As uh, the guy to talk about. I, yeah, <laughs> I, it does. And um, I mean, I think with the other three that we talked about, Beyond Wade Newton, I think he nails it. I think he's everything he's supposed to be uh, in this movie. He, he's he's uh, narcissistic. He's scary. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's exactly what you want a Bond villain to be. And he has, what I love about him too is the plans that he's had are everything that are realistic to the drug barons of that time period and probably even the drug barons of this mm-hmm. time period of when we're recording. You know, he, he seems very rooted in um, reality. Uh, and I, I feel like he plays the part perfectly. I so. agree with you. I think that um, he was a good fit for this role, although, like I said, I like Benicio a little bit better um, in that character as the henchman. Um, I still think Sanchez is creepy, and you you know believe that he means what he says when he's going to take somebody out. It's like, you know, it, I love that he can switch from smiling to killing you <laughs> in a matter of seconds. Um, but but I also like that they gave him this. Um, realistic softer side of you know even when he's riding in the back of the armored truck it's like he's not really worried he's just hanging out he knows he's getting picked up soon he's like whatever and then later too when he's you know in the um the room in the casino and has the iguana on his shoulder and he gives a kiss to his girlfriend and says would you like a kiss too (laughs) um it it i like that they give him those little moments that are kind of funny but then the rest of the time he is a believable terrifying you know lead villain with this masterful plan he plays his character in a way that is the the polar opposite of the um well, you know, you know, press orange for murder. He he's very mm-hmm. different from that type of Bond villain who's just so clearly <laughs> he does his own dirty work. He's very hands yeah, on. Yeah, he's just so yeah. clearly the mustache twirling supervillain. This is not that guy, and and for that you believe him, and and he plays all the layers. He he plays murderous psychopath, but he also plays the charming guy that you can kind of understand 
why people are attracted to him. Um, there is a, there, there's a dynamic that they play with him a couple of times, and I remembered really well uh, from the first time I saw this when Truman, his, uh, his bank toady, is giving the investors a tour of the bank, and he's saying, you know, we have a surplus of $10 million a day come through here, and it's just Sanchez who is throwing in the little one-liner quips Mm-hmm. after Truman Lodge is giving the business. So Sanchez saying, like, our only trouble is what to do with all the money. Uh-huh. And they all laugh at him, and they're all just tolerating Truman. <laughs> you know? And can I mention, since you threw in what uh, Zerb did outside uh-huh. of this movie, I remembered the guy that played Truman, Anthony Stark, from the weirdest movie I have ever seen, and I can say that with confidence, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Wow, nice, nice. So if you haven't seen that, it is also George Clooney when he's very young in oh, that movie. Oh, sweet, sweet. And, and yeah. look, let's face it, Anthony Stark looks like every bad guy from an 80s movie, you know? Yeah. Like yes, the rich <laughs> entitled, like the guy who's going to take over the ski lodge from the kids and, you know, turn it into condos. Like he is that guy pretty much. Um, but yeah, they they play those characters. Per- like Robert Davi plays Sanchez perfectly. Everybody around him is playing perfectly to give Sanchez a sort of weight and a sort of believability that that helps you through this movie with him that helps you through the process of this movie with him mm-hmm. and and as you said matt he's terrifying he's he's dangerous and it's really difficult to watch some of those scenes with him and uh, particularly with lupe uh, uh to lisa soto and i know that we'll talk about her in a moment too but um every little element of that completes this really complete picture of Sanchez. And another villain that was in that group that he was marketing to, um, you know, of all of the Asian businessmen, I noticed was um, his name is actually Quang in the movie, but it's Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa. Yes. Uh, I recognized his face. I knew him from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> nice. Oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> um, he did... Two Mortal Kombat movies. He was in The Phantom. Uh, he was in Memoirs of a Geisha. Um, a- amazing actor and definitely brought another, you know, really great creepy character to that group. Nice. Yeah, I, that's the that's the thing too. You know, we didn't talk about it in the story, but I thought that was really interesting. Is how this story really revolves around so many more people than just Bond's vendetta. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we get that through the villains by thinking that you know, um, one of these guys. Uh, is a villain working with Sanchez, and really he's Hong Kong uh, security, uh, narcotics. And and Bond actually destroys their case. You know, um, and, and uh, almost hurts the case that Pam's been working on with the CIA with one of uh, uh, Sanchez's guys mm-hmm. to get it inside. So, I mean... Um, What's interesting about the the movie and and these villains and Bond going after them, I think, is the fact that Bond is on his own and he's 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 not working for the British government at this point. Um, and he also finds out that his actions are having repercussions on other people's work, the same work that he's supposed <laughs> to be doing. Um, 
uh, that he's given up for this revenge. Uh, and so I think that's something that's really interesting, and you get that played out as he gets further into this plot with these villains. I thought that was really neat um, to see. Be- and again, that's a layer of complexity that most Bond movies just don't have. So I think that's really nice as, as he gets further into the world of the villain and kind of trying to work his revenge. Uh, he finds that uh, he's destroying other people's work that he's normally doing. So I just, and he would be, I think, quite upset if um, other people got in his way, you know, and if his normal spy routine. So uh, I, I really like that. And I, on the whole, I think the the villain lineup here is one of the strongest that we've ever gotten. I mean, we've talked about, like you said, John, press <laughs> M for murder. Um, and uh, you just get this, uh, press orange for murder. Uh, and you just get this, eh, these blase guys. But you've got three people in this movie, maybe four, depending on where we mm-hmm. land on Wayne Newton, where like all of these guys are creating a complex structure of villainy and each one of them has something else to add. It's like, man, you could have taken almost any of these guys and planted them in another Bond movie, and they could have been a much better Bond villain than some of the ones we got. Mm-hmm. So it's, and we've got a, a plethora. You would, would you say we have a plethora uh, of villains? Yes, yeah, yes, I'll have. Uh, I would say you have a plethora <laughs> of villains. Do you know what uh, that means? No, I'll have. Uh, <laughs> oh man that goes all the way back to our i think our um our uh specter recording when you brought up his own old guapo so uh bringing it back bringing it back uh so bond has uh, some friends along the way and i i love like you said john they bring david henderson back with felix and what I really like about that is, you know, that we're here, we're expanding that character. He's getting married. We're seeing Bond's connection with him is very strong, obviously very strong. His his wife, you know, the woman he's marrying loves James too. Like they they both are head over heels for this guy. He's he's their best friend. And I just they I felt like him being in the movie and that relationship that both Felix and his his new wife have with James really sells why you are with James when he goes on this, you know, murdering revenge spree. Um, I, I, I really like him being back. I think it was really strong. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it, having a different bond um, probably they felt like would take people out a little bit since this is only Dalton's second movie as Bond. So maybe you needed to bring back some familiar characters. Um, And so I think that it was kind of essential that they bring back David as Felix and not having a different actor also playing Felix with a different Bond. Um, And I think it makes you recall back to the other movies David did so that you do it does cement that friendship for you more having a returning actor that you knew pretty well as Felix um I I did think it was a little weird how many people were kissing the bride that were not the groom I was like (laughs) that didn't happen at our wedding honey (laughs) yeah and and look let's just not forget that uh David Haddison is badass. I mean, he he was Felix yeah. in Live and Let Die. He was in the original uh, The Fly from 1958. 
He was Lee Crane in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That man will be 91 years old this year, and he still looks like a million bucks. Um, wow. he, he's just awesome. He, he is a, a star among stars. And um, there were any other Felixes they could have gone with or, or gone back to. Um, don't know if you could get Jack Lord in 1989. Um, I don't know if that would have played right. But um, but there are, there are other actors, but this just seemed like the right choice, and, and they seem to generally have some uh, chemistry. Uh, I do agree with you uh, uh, that uh, the, there was a lot of familiarity with Priscilla Barnes as Della. Um, <laughs> like know. everybody's kissing her. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, they're all very close, very, very close. <laughs> yeah, as you do with your close friends. Sure, Kiss sure. Kiss them all on the mouth, right? Maybe, maybe everyone was Could just be. a little bit <laughs> yeah, drunk. Yeah, it is a wedding. You know, well, and and obviously the bride yes. was a little bit drunk. Yes. And I mean, who wouldn't take advantage of 007? Oh, that's very yeah. true. There, he is James you know? Bond. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> exactly. So, um, I no, I, I agree with you both. I think, um, and, and two, he actually hurts himself on one of the stunts, and he has a limp in the rest of the movie um, uh, in, uh, because of the oh, uh, wow. parachuting mm. scene. Wow. Uh, one of the cool things about this movie too is uh, one of Bond's allies who doesn't get out of the office much is Q <laughs> and we get to spend a lot of time with Q and I just love the fact that Q is in the field here helping his friend and it was kind of nice to see that Q cares about Bond in a way that we maybe had not seen before like he and he likes being in the field. He's like, he's excited <laughs> the fact that he's out of the he's office. Like, yeah, I'm a cool guy too. Q on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, I think Desmond, uh, as a person, is like the cutest old man at this point. So I love him anyway as an actor. Um, but then it, it's so sweet that you feel like in the past, Q is always so annoyed with Bond. And you know, he's Mr. Cool Guy. And he gets all the gadgets that I spend all my time on. And he doesn't know how to use them. And, uh, but now he's, you know, also gone rogue, gone out into the field, taken some things with him to help Bond. Um, it is really nice and does feel like they had a friendship beyond just being co-workers. He, he's great. I mean, it, it's nice to see him in the field. It's nice to see him in some action, whether it's uh, tossing a broom into the uh, into the shrubs or uh, getting mm -hmm. knocked over in a chair by Bond. <laughs> you know, it's just it's cool to see him out there. And he he's wonderful. Uh, you know, Q had needed a scene like that from the very beginning. So I'm glad they, they delivered here. I love when she's like taking the picture of them, you know, and she's like, smile. And he's like, don't touch that. <laughs> like, it's it's not just 007 right. that does it. It's other right. people, too. They just don't respect the property. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's not only that, but I also liked the relationship that he had with Pam. Mm -hmm. Like this. Uh, the, I mean, he's like this grandfather figure. Right. And and um, he he understands the world in which 007 inhabits and, and the things that he has to do. Uh, he gets that. And he, I like that there are a couple of scenes where he kind of has to ex explain that to her. Mm -hmm. um, because even though she might work for the CIA, she's mm -hmm. a, an informant, right? She's not an actual agent. Um, so that there's a part of this world that she still doesn't quite get. And so I really thought that that was nice. And just his presence there, having him there more was a lot of fun. Like that added fun without us adding in the JW right. Peppa right. kind of fun, right. which that ain't fun. So um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I loved that all the gadgets that he had, too, again, they felt very real. It wasn't crazy or outlandish. You know, this all felt like something that you could actually have created at that time period. So that that was really like nice. the plastic um, explosive toothpaste. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The dentonite. Yeah. So don't brush with dentonite. No. <laughs> uh, just you. You're right. not going to be happy. Um <laughs> What did you guys think? We have two Bond women in the movie, and so what did you think of Carrie Lowell is Pam, uh, who's the ex-pilot and, of course, the CIA informant who's been working with Felix? She is probably one of my most favorite. Um, it prob- I would say she's my second favorite um, Bond woman ever because she is sitting in that bar with a shotgun under the table, and you don't know until she wants you to know. <laughs> Just for that reason. <laughs> and then she's also an ex-army pilot, and she's this informant. I mean, she's just, in every way, Bond's equal, and I, I love her. Thousand weekends a month. This is probably the first time I will ever completely disagree with you, only because um, I think the character is fantastic. I think on paper, this is <laughs> awesome. I am not a fan of her performance, uh, of Carrie Lowell's performance. And I remember even back in 1989, seeing this for the first time on the big screen, there was something that really, Mm -hmm. that so did not sit right with me in her performance. I remember quoting and making fun of it when I left the theater with my friends. Um, And I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know if it's direction. I don't know what. But... um, her performance never sat right with me. I watched it again thinking, okay, I'm going to see this with some fresh eyes here. And all I could come back to was, man, I wanted this to be better. Um, I I think like Mm -hmm. you, yeah, on paper, she's a shotgun wielding badass who is a good match for Bond. I like the conflicts that they introduce for them. Um, don't totally buy that they're ready to make out on their second meeting, but whatever, you know, that that's fine. It's a bond movie. I'm okay with that a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it fell short of the promise that was there. Like we've had these bond women before who they've, they've tried to make equals. You you had major Amasova and the spy who loved me. Um, even, you know, go, go further back and, and you've got, uh, the huge misfire with Mary Goodnight, an agent who should be capable and should be equal. And they just, that did not come together at all. They played her like bad comic relief. They didn't do that here. They, they didn't diminish the character by making her bad comic relief. Mm-hmm. I just think that either they didn't cast her right or they didn't direct her right. And there are things that in my head, like when she walks up to the bartender at the casino and says, shaken, not stirred, I cringe. I cringe every because time. Because of I, the hand gesture? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because here's the thing, it should have just been one hand gesture, and you know the look that should have been on her face when she said it, but they, they messed it up. They, they, they mm-hmm. It's not directed right, you know? And even in that scene when Bond confronts her, when, when he thinks that she's double-crossed him, uh, when he sees her meeting with Heller back at the, uh, back at the bank, and he mm-hmm. goes into the room, and he throws her on the bed, and he pulls the gun, and he's like, all right, tell me what's going on here. That should have been a really intense scene. He's great in that scene. She's not great in that scene. And um, 
And it drives me a little crazy that she's not. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I want all of that to be awesome. I want all of that to be as good as the rest of the characters in this movie. But it doesn't fire for me. I get what you're saying, and and I didn't really like um, those two scenes as much either. But I think the one that bothered me the most was um, at the very end um, when she's still jealous of Lupe. Yeah, um, right. It, I just thought that they played, it, and I don't know if it was her acting or if they, you know, it was direction um, telling her to play that that um, scene a little bit on the weak emotional side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, felt silly to me. Yeah. I, I wanted to see And that her she be... then is immediately like, oh, I forgive you. Yeah. I, I wanted to see her be tougher. And, and I think here, you know, nearly 30 years uh, in retrospect, 30 years later, that that role would be cast and would be played very differently. I think the, the idea there works. And I think the dynamic there, the relationship works. But we would see that actually realized in a very different way now i'll just be mm -hmm. honest i think both of the women here kind of lack in their range to act and unfortunately it is a detriment in the sense that pam should be somebody who's going toe-to-toe -to -toe emotionally with bond in a resonant way um, and that scene specifically, I, th I think you'd called out john is when he confronts her on the bed you know and he pulls the gun on her and and Part of that scene is acted okay, and then yes. part of it's not. Like, I like the, at the end of the scene where they both kind of, they realize, Bond realizes he was wrong, and she realizes that he realizes he's wrong. Yeah. And so there's this, um, there's this forgiveness happening between them, and there's this anger and frustration happening all in the scene. And part of it, too, is there's this, um, the way Dalton acts it, you get this sense that he's different than almost every other Bond, I think, since, uh, uh, Honor Majesty's mm -hmm. Secret Service, which I feel like was the very first one where Bond actually seemed to care about the women that he came in mm -hmm. contact with. Timothy Dalton displays a real care about the women he comes in contact with in the movies that he's in. I think it works really well. And in that scene, mm -hmm. I totally get that. Because there's that, she kind of leans up against him and he kind of puts his head down to her. And there's this real moment that happens. And that's where I felt like she does nail the scene with him, but it's before that with the accusations going back and forth where uh, I I think um, you I just wanted more. And I agree with Christy too. That scene, you know, where she sees him with Lupe at the very end and I would have much rather her say something like, Q, let's dance, you know, and like her start dancing with Q and yeah. be like, screw mm. that guy. I don't need him, you know? Um, I think that would have been mm -hmm. much stronger yeah. than, you know, the, oh, I run off and I'm, you know, uh, weepy, you know, uh, Bond doesn't want me. You know, that's right. that's not what you want from this character because, <laughs> you know, the rest of the time, I think she's, yeah, she is kind of super badass. And the things that she's doing, I, I like the way she takes a, a, a advantage of Wayne Newton, you know? Like, she totally plays mm -hmm. him, you know? Right. And, and the way she uses that overly right. big dress to her effect of, like, you know, she just shows, she, she finds the way to show enough leg, you know? And just she knows exactly what she's doing to him. And she's got him, 
like she does some things really great in this, yeah. but you know, um, gosh, uh, I don't think that it. What you needed is somebody who could match the intensity and the emotion that Dalton gives you in the role, and she doesn't quite do it. But I love the overarching role and the story that she has, you know? So, and I think that's yeah. the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, there are, there are some imperfections in the movie, but I think when you kind of put it all together, it does make a more cohesive whole than most Bond movies when you think about what the storyline is for everybody and all of that. It's just not quite as heartily acted as we, you know, desire, uh, for sure. So, <laughs> um, what about Lupe? Uh, because obviously, too, for her, she she is a different type of character. She's not the hard ass. She's somebody who got trapped in this world of almost like sex slavery. I mean, you know, she's like she and. It, mm -hmm. She doesn't have anywhere to go or anybody to help her escape because there is nowhere to escape from for this guy. Um, and I think that part's, uh, yeah, I'll say, I think that part's really good about her performance. But then her delivery on other lines, like, oh, James. It's just like, oh. Yeah, it She's falls. so tragic. Yeah. <laughs> you feel bad for her, but the, the role overall feels like it fell kind of flat and that a lot of her delivery is kind of emotionless um, or it, it, like you said, Matt, with that scene that she's um, a little too gaga over bond um, when she should be probably more wary than she is mm -hmm. since so many people want her. <laughs> um, but, but she does get um, some really great costuming and I think both Bond women do I've got to give a shout out to the purple dress with the rip away skirt I, 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 that's awesome I mean you could cosplay with that Christy <laughs> yeah I know yeah, yeah. Hide a gun <laughs> um, fake gun whoa watch out Michael that's Christy's husband for all the listeners yeah <laughs> <laughs> So I'll, I'll actually, I'll take up a, a contrary position here, not just because I'm feeling particularly contrarian <laughs> today, uh, but I, um, in watching this movie the first time around, I, I remember thinking that Lupe was okay watching it, and I've seen it many times over the years, but, but studying it again for this show, um, I, I really liked her performance a lot more and, and really keyed into the tragedy of who she was and what was going on. Um, in every scene, I thought you could read that there are a few motivations going on here. The, there's self-protection. Um, there's the, the, the feeling that she can't escape where she is, that she's only as good as where she is. And then trying to use the only tools she has in her arsenal to try to get out. If it means seducing Bond, it means seducing Bond. And not that I think that she's playing it um, in any way disingenuously, but, but that's all she knows. I think there's a lot going on with this character. And I also think that Talisa Soto plays that character with more maturity than, I, she was like 20 years old when they made this movie. And I think she brings more to that role than certainly a lot of 20-year-old actors. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I liked her performance. Again, I, I don't think it's, you know, the best of all Bond women we've ever seen. Uh, but I got more out of it this time 
than I had in the past. Uh, and I, I, I actually agree with you be- in that sense that I rewatching it, uh, I did, I did feel I felt for both of the women. You know, like what they're supposed mm-hmm. to be giving. Um, I, I think in the end, what I, I wanted was just a little bit more. Uh, and and part of that was mainly just the naturalism and delivery. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's really the only thing that would have helped uh, in in some of their readings and some of their lines. Um, other yeah. than that, I think the actual the roles and again how they fit into the story are great. Um, I wanted to to ask you guys about the action in this movie because I feel like. Um, this has some of the the coolest, well staged action sequences that also feel very real of any Bond movie up to this point. Yeah, um, I will hearken back to um, seeing Jaws on the airplane scene. Um, I thought that that was also really good um, in you know some of the other Bond action that we've seen. But um, I do think that this is pretty high up there on great um, Bond action scenes. I especially um, really liked the water skiing <laughs> happening in this one. Um, and, and then the truck scene at the end more than I did the um, the plane parachuting at the very beginning felt a little bit like the whole mission was too easy for Felix and Bond. Um, and of course, then we find out that it was. But but I do think that the the water stunts and things going on in this movie were just stand out for me above everything else. I mean, the scuba divers, the water skiing, the, um, you know, underwater devices like the what do they call it? The submarine or whatever he had. Crest had. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed that. Yeah. I I mean, uh, Timothy Dalton is he has great physicality without you ever feeling that he's inhuman. And that's the problem with a lot of action movies today is that you have actors and uh, who just have terrific physicality. They can be in a fight scene or, or whatever, but there's a, a certain level of removal for you in the audience that you just don't believe what they're doing. That opening airplane stunt, yeah, I, they, they played it smart where it felt too easy. Because it was too easy, but it was a great scene. Um, not as much a favorite for me as the opening of Living Daylights, because, come on, what an entrance for a new Bond, you know. Um, but it, it, it's fantastic. The, the hardware felt real. The, the shots felt real. To see that helicopter fly by with a plane dangling from it, mm-hmm. it's a real thing, you know. Um and yeah, the the water stunts were great. Even the uh, yeah the the water skiing scene. Had this been another movie, then you would have cued a Beach Boys song, and you would have cut <laughs> to a green screen, and you would have lost all investment in the moment. But in this, you really felt like, oh wow, everybody's this is gone happening. surfing, <laughs> surfing USA. <laughs> and not only do you feel like it's happening, you feel like it's difficult yes. to do, and it's happening. You know, uh, so yeah, the, the, the physicality in this is awesome. This is really good. E- even a, a little moment like uh, Lupe leaving Sanchez's house in the boat and then Bond popping up from the side where he's been hiding underwater 
mm-hmm. you know, that's, yeah, that there's Timmy Dalton actually doing that stunt. Not a very complex stunt, but it's a stunt. Well, yeah, um, he did the plane stunt as much as he could. Uh, and in fact, mm-hmm. Cubby was not happy when he came to see where they were filming that. And to see his actor <laughs> on the wire, he was really a dis- displeased, to say the least. Um, you know, so wow. Timothy Dalton was very keen, as a lot of actors are, but I think even then some of the other Bonds, um, very keen to do as many of the stunts as possible. Uh, and you can tell. Um, I also like the scene where he uh, has to swim from the pilot uh, ship down underneath mm. and back up. And you can tell yeah. that when he gets up, you know, he's been holding his breath for a while and it feels that yeah. realistic, like it was almost too far, you know, uh, yeah. I really like that. Um, I, I feel like that the truck sequences are just phenomenal um, with these, yeah. I mean, just massive real gas explosions, which it's great because it's, it doesn't feel fake in the sense of like we're just trying to make it bigger. These are actually tanker trucks full of gas. So they mm-hmm. would explode with just massive fireballs. And so everything about that feels gritty and real. And the fights that are happening on those trucks feel great. Um, You know, there's only a couple of insert scenes of people inside trucks where you can tell that's on a stage, but the rest of it feels so good and realistic that I, I just, it's, it's a movie that's kind of a joy to watch because you feel like, you are in the midst of the action with Bond and the action feels real enough to make you feel the pain that he's feeling when he gets thrown off a truck or, you know, any of these mm-hmm. things that happen to him or when he's almost had a whole building fall on him, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff. I just, I think it's really well done. So um, Huge kudos to them for uh, raising the bar of the action, but also making it feel grounded enough that you're not like, oh, space lasers, you know. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Although I think we could have done away with the shark. I don't think that that was really that scary. Mm-hmm. I think that they could have mm-hmm. done an injury to Felix differently in the same environment. Um, it just mm-hmm. doesn't come across believable to me. Yeah, um, the the shark itself is not, uh, scary in the sense because it doesn't look real, but what it does to Felix is definitely looks real. So mm-hmm. I think that's right, the part. Right. Yeah, I totally get. Yeah. It. I mean, yeah, this is. Um, I wanted to ask before we get to ratings, what you guys thought of the music? Um, I thought it was interesting that originally Vic Flick, who played the guitar lead in the original Bond theme, had written a song with Eric Clapton for the movie. And they reject it. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want to hear that song. <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just shocked. Like, you, you have the guy, the original creator of the Bond theme. He gets together with Eric Clapton, writes a Bond song, and they're like, mm, we'll bring in Gladys Knight instead. Like, there's yeah. nothing wrong we, with Gladys we're not Knight. Big Eric Clapton but come fans. on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it could have been along the lines with Live and Let Die, you know, having a, another Paul McCartney um, kind of person. You know, I think that would have been incredible. So it's it's really unfortunate that they turned it down. But I think that um, I liked the, the score better than I liked the song. Um, 
I think that especially I did want to say, even though the scene didn't really make sense for the timing in the boat scene where um, Bond is riding away with Pam um, and, you know, they're about to kiss or whatever. The, the music there is just beautiful. And I think it comes back again and again. Um, so I, I love the score for this movie. And I, I really noticed it. Um, but yeah, License to Kill, um, the opening and then um, the song at the credits, I wasn't a huge fan of. Yeah, I mean, um, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the Beastie Boys. I think this is one of their seminal albums. Um, oh, wait, uh, we're talking about License to Kill. Yeah, not License that, to, no, no <laughs> sabotage right? on nice. this album. Yeah. No, okay, okay. Just wanted to make sure. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I'm about 75% of the way there on the score. I think the the strong numbers in that score are really strong and uh, the reuses of the bond theme mostly are really good there's a couple of arrangements that i'm not crazy about but it's also just a little bit dated in that kind of late 90s way um theme song eh, you, you know you could tell that if they're going to give up something like Monty Norman and Vic Flick, <laughs> which just sounds, uh, I'm sorry, Vic Flick and uh, Eric Clapton, which just sounds like a crazy thing to not do, then they really felt like, okay, we have to do something that sounds exactly like a derivative of an older Bond theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Which they tried to do, and sure, it, it's all right, but it's ultimately forgettable because all you do then is think about the originals you think about goldfinger and you think about the other tracks that it was riffing on mm-hmm. so um but yeah but i i think the score is really nice um like i said a couple of clunkers in there but, but for the most part it's a really strong score yeah and i think it's interesting because uh one you've got michael Kamen uh doing the score and he's doing it because uh john barry's just had surgery and so he couldn't, and he'd already scored, you know, uh, Lethal Weapon and uh, Die Hard. So he's very familiar with doing these action scenes. And I think he does a really great job. I think that's actually where um, the tracks that I really loved the most seem to shine. He's great at the action. Um, and it sounded mm-hmm. like a good classic Bond store. So I really had no problems with that. Um, I do agree with you both. I feel like this... The song, the the opening theme song is so it's just so vanilla. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. it yeah, it feels it, like safe. you've just poured yeah. out vanilla. And and, that, and the opening credits are actually that way too. There's nothing exciting about the opening credits. They just feel like laziness um, when it comes to Bond credits. So um, yeah, there's just nothing to love in that. But. The score itself, yeah, works for the movie, and I didn't really have any issues with it. So um, all in all, uh, as we bring out, uh, you know, our license to rate, uh, Christy, (laughs) what would you rate license to kill? Ooh, um, that's a tough one. You got a license to rate. (laughs) Nice. Go straight to You got a lot of great title options. (laughs) Um. I I would say I, I rate this actually pretty high um, and would give it an 8 out of 10 um, for me because of all of the, the areas where it really hits on all cylinders. I think that the villains stand out amazingly in this movie. 
Um, and I like that it's not just one guy and it's not just one guy hiding behind a computer. You know, it's a guy that really gets in the field and works on things himself. Um, I love Timothy Dalton. I'm sad that this is, you know, our last movie with him. Um, I like the, the serious tone and the fact that he gets to avenge his friends. Um, but I, I thought that, you know, like I said, the, the bloody stuff went a little too far for me. And um, even though I did love um, nine times out of ten the character of Pam, I do agree with John that there were a couple places where she kind of bugged me, too. Um, so, yeah, I, I give it an eight out of ten. Um, and I'm going to give it an eight out of ten uh, leg straps for a gun or a <laughs> <laughs> like Pam would have. Nothing like um, a thigh strap. Yeah. Um, and my favorite quote was, uh, I really like that moment where in at the boat scene and then again at the end where she says, um, well, why don't, he says, why don't you wait until you're asked? And she says, well, why don't you ask me? I thought that was cute. Um, it's weird, you know, uh, rewatching all of these movies sort of changes my perception of them. So when we were doing the Moore era, I remember liking Live and Let Die a lot less than I thought I did. I remember liking The Man with the Golden Gun more than I thought I did. This time around, um, rewatching The Living Daylights, I remember, I remember liking it a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, because at the time these came out, um, I, I was sort of middle of the road about that one. But now watching these in context again and in order and talking with you guys, uh, I really appreciate that movie a lot more. Watching this movie again, I'm going to give it some points off. And, and here's why. I, I think you guys are right on. I, I think the story is awesome. I think Timothy Dalton is awesome. He is so criminally underrated and and underused, clearly, as Bond. Yes. We only got two movies out of him. Just completely unfair. Um, and it really felt like they knew what to do with him, you know, which is great. They sort of reinvented the movies around him where they could. Not always, but, but for the most part. Um, and I, I think the villain here really works. I think the world that he's in really works. However... I have to get some points off, some big, big points off for production value. There's a lot in this movie that feels very pedestrian, that even though it's real world, it still feels kind of cheap. It feels made for TV. Um, I I also can't get around uh, Carrie Lowell uh, a, a lot in this. So uh, um, there, there are just things that, that take me out of the movie. So... I, I I might have given it a seven if I'm feeling really generous, but but today I'm just feeling very contrarian. So I'm going to give it six out of ten tubes of dentonite toothpaste. Um, I, I might even adjust that up to like the six point five or a little, you know, creeping a little closer to seven, depending on like if I watch it again and maybe I, I go back and rewatch that uh, that that airplane scene at the beginning or the uh, the water skiing or, or some of the other really daring stunts. Maybe I creep up a little bit higher, closer to seven, but I'm not quite there at this moment. You know, it's funny. Um, for me, I think I have always liked this movie more than other people. Uh, now, John, I am going to go with you in the sense that when we watched Living Daylights, that movie just blew my expectations away because I remember not liking that one at all. 
And then we watched it, and now it's in like my top 11 or top 10 of Bond films. Um, Strangely enough, it knocked this one out of place number nine to number 10 on my list. So, um, but this movie still does, I think, hold up. And what it shows me is that even as you said, John, production value isn't quite the same in some places, especially maybe in lighting and those kind of staging. Um, There are some issues with the actresses and their portrayal. But the story overall is so strong when it comes to Bond films. In fact, I would venture to say, up to this point, this may be one of the best Bond stories, the most cohesive Bond stories when it comes to when you break down what's actually happening in the story. All the stuff makes sense here. You're not left with any lingering feelings like, huh, really? What? I, you know, all the pieces seem to really fit. And so that, to me, is great. And then you put on top of that that Dalton is just, you know, acting his PPK out. And it's just, (laughs) it's, it's really good. And it is sad that people did not respond to this. And part of that, I think, is that this is one of the hardest edged Bond films until we got Craig. And probably this is the hardest edge Bond film until we get Craig. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if people were quite ready for that yet. Um, Christy, I don't think people were quite ready for the violence in a Bond movie yet like this. Um, I don't know, but I, for me personally, I really like this Bond movie, and to me, I will be there right with you, Christy. This is a clear seven and a half out of ten shark bites. Uh, so mm. yeah, it's it's just really I I think it's it's a Bond movie that you can enjoy and put on, and and honestly. It's because Timothy Dalton just makes this role completely zone. And it'll be interesting to go back and see if my very first Bond movie that I saw in the theaters lives up with, as we'll dive into Brosnan's Goldeneye. So I'm just really excited that we have reached the Brosnan era. And you know what? It's crazy. We only have four more Bond films to cover. Wow. Five. Four. Yeah. Five. Four. Four. Okay. I think it was four. Yeah, it's four. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking five because um, if we do uh, oh, Never yeah. Say Never Again. So anyway. Oh. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, so, but yeah. so excited that we have gotten this opportunity. I love getting to talk Bond with you guys. And this one was a really fun one to do. And so thank you to our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson. You guys make this happen with your support of the network here through Patreon at patreon.com slash Trek FM. It's a massive thing that we're doing here at Trek FM with all the shows we're doing. There's no way we can do it without you. Um, Every little bit helps that you can contribute. So go over to patreon.com slash Trek FM, see how you can become part of the team today. And, We've got great ways that we love giving back to you. Uh, So there are different support levels you can be at, um, and there's different perks that come with those. So again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, uh, Christy, thank you so much for being back. It's been a pleasure to have you here in the 602 Club. But uh, let everybody know where they can find you if they want to talk with 
more bond with you or what else you've got going on? Sure. I always love coming here and talking bond and can't believe we've only got four or five more left. I know. I know. Sad face. It feels so short. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when I'm not here on 602 Club, um, I'm also um, on every month with my co-host Teresa Delgado on Galactic Fashion, um, talking about all of the geek fashion coming out Um and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Galactic Fashion Pod. And then you can find me personally on um, both Instagram and Twitter as well at Bespin Bell. And I also write for StarWarsReport.com and FangirlNextDoor.com. Awesome. Awesome. And make sure you're checking Christy out with what she's doing. Um, if you're not following on Instagram and seeing the adorable uh, fashion that she's got going on. I mean, she rivals John for fashion. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but for women, Slow obviously, lady. Um, you know, John's up, not usually walk, rocking the BB eight dress. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but, uh, John, where can everybody find you? Because, uh, you are a man about town. Well, I, I, I try to be, you know, like, like a, like a shark. Got to keep swimming. Got to keep moving. You know, just keep swimming. Just After keep you've swimming. had a nice full meal of Felix's left leg. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, wow, that just took a left yeah, turn in Weirdville. It did. Um, so you can find me on Mission Log, uh, missionlogpodcast.com, part of the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. Uh, in fact, uh, as we record this, I'm, I'm gearing up to do a live show tonight. We do uh, Tuesdays live now on Facebook at 7 p.m. Pacific, so I hope you all will join us there. And you can find me personally um, at DVD Geeks. Uh, also on Instagram, jchamp72, or slow-mo gentleman. <laughs> I yes. had to say that one Which, a little more yeah. slowly. <laughs> you, you do need to be following the slow-mo gentleman. Yes. Because, <laughs> mm, wow. oh. uh, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02, and of course I'm on Instagram under that same name. I, I am not as cool or slow-mo as my friend here, but... Uh, yeah, follow me anyway. Uh, you could find me here on the network doing we're all about Deep Space Nine. Um, I'm over on the Nerd Party Network talking about Harry Potter with my good friend Dre Kaufman on Owl Post as we walk through each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk all things Star Wars. We're so excited as we're recording this. Um, Star Wars Rebels has just ended. We've got some big things coming up, so make sure you check that out. And, of course, you can find me doing cinema stories with my friend Courtney as we kind of talk through films through the lens of faith. And it's just so much fun to really dive in that way. So I hope you'll check out all of those shows. You can find all the shows that everyone has mentioned on the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And I highly encourage you to check every one of them out. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Recording. Everybody's recording. Christy's recording. John is recording. Everybody's recording. All right.
<laughs> Everybody was recording audio. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. <laughs>